We're starting in verse 4 of chapter 1. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Let's pray. Lord, we want to ask you today to speak to us through your word. We want to hear from you clearly. We want to be a people uh, that are busy about your work. And we have an opportunity with something like Operation Christmas Child. We have an opportunity with uh, the fall party uh, to be ministers, used by you, God, to be hospitable, uh, even with us opening up our building to another church, meeting right below us now, God. So bless that church. Um, and that pastor and the preaching of the word and their Sunday school going on right now. Lord, we pray your hand of blessing upon the other groups that meet at Liberty, uh, SCCHE, the Knights, Life Light, Speech and Debate. Um, Lord, let those, uh, those teachers and those leaders have wisdom from above in leading their organizations and making decisions that please and glorify you and, and putting teachers in that will instruct those kids um, to love you, to know you, um, to have a reverence and awe for you, God. Lord, we pray for our kids program that's coming up uh, right before Christmas that you would bless that. Um, bring many guests and family members to hear the gospel of truth, which is your gospel. And God bless us now as we get into your word. Uh, let us be molded and shaped by you. Spirit, have your way with us. I'll fill us now to hear from you rightly. Amen. All right, here's my question. How far does the gospel reach? Because we just saw a video, right? I mean, they, they had to, they spent some time putting that video together, by the way, y'all, it looked like, because there's like, must have been some good drone footage, you know, climbing up that mountain and in canoes and everything, like, and what are they using that as an opportunity for? Yes, we're giving kids um, gifts and, and goodies and things like that. But Samaritan's Purse, their primary goal is what? Getting the gospel to, to those kids, to those villages, to those unreached people groups. So how far does the gospel reach? So it reaches far, doesn't it? To the ends of the earth, right? And, and that's where some of the Samaritan's Purse boxes go. So the gospel and the influence of the gospel, it's not just meant for inside the church. And the church at times has been guilty of that. Um, it's not just meant for the public square. That's part of where it is. The reach of the gospel, it is far and wide. And there is no place that it can't go. There's no place that it shouldn't go. So how far does the word influence us in our culture, our nation, in our world? And as we think about that, that that's going to help us know where we need to take the gospel. Like, where are we supposed to take it? And then how do we get it there? We're going to talk about that more towards the end. But there's no place that we shouldn't take the gospel. There's no place the gospel isn't supposed to go. There's no place the gospel isn't supposed to penetrate into the hearts of people. Amen? So the gospel affects all areas. It touches all areas. It influences all areas. We can never ever say the gospel can't go there regardless of what location it is regardless of what place it is uh, even if we get roadblocks even if we get pushback whatever we get thrown at us it does not matter the gospel needs to go there look at some of the words that we see mentioned in the passage that we just read these are the things that the thessalonians were up against in verse four 
we see the words persecutions and afflictions mentioned. In verse 5, it talks about suffering right at the end of the verse. Verse 6 talks about afflictions and being afflicted. And then verse 7 says something as well about being afflicted. Now let's look at these words just for a minute. This first term, persecution, and I've wondered sometimes because you see persecution and affliction and even tribulation and suffering, and what do those, some of those words mean? When, when we see the word persecution, which actually isn't used a whole lot in the New Testament, um, but when we see that word used, it is specifically in regard to religious suffering, being persecuted for the faith, we might say something like that. The second term, we see a whole lot more. You guys like that background music, by the way? Yeah. Okay. That's the church going on. That's all right. <clears throat> that second term, affliction, that's the one that we see a whole lot more of throughout the New Testament. Okay? And that just describes all kinds of difficulties. Can it include religious persecution? Yes, but it can include um, much more than that. Just difficulties of all kinds. Both Paul, using both of these terms here in verse, in verse 4, part of it is emphasizing how great the things were going on that they were facing. Persecutions, afflictions, they're suffering, all sorts of stuff going on, okay? But here's the thing. What happens? We're talking about the gospel going forth. We're talking about getting it to the uttermost parts of the earth. What happens when the gospel goes forth? There's one of two things that happens. There is either an acceptance or a rejection, right? I mean, people accept it or they reject it. There's, there's no third option. So, and if you think about it, I mean, think about Acts for a second, the 28 chapters. Where, wherever Paul went, he, he either caused a riot or a revival. Sometimes both, okay? Um, and it really wasn't Paul causing it, right? What was causing it? The gospel. So they go into a city. What happens? Some people accept it. Some people reject it. Was there any city that ever completely accepted the gospel? No. But was there a city that ever completely rejected it? No. I mean, Paul, he goes on this journey. Friends, it's, it's fruitful. Every single missionary, you know, there's three of them. Every single journey he goes on, three recorded in Acts at least, every single journey, it's fruitful wherever he's going. Why? Because the gospel, guess what it does? It bears fruit. So when we're preaching it, it's going to bear fruit. Paul probably shared with people that didn't get saved when he first preached the gospel, but maybe some of his converts, maybe some of his disciples working in that city continue to reach out to those people. Okay? The church of Thessalonica didn't just start with whatever Paul ended up gathering from his first visit and just stay that size. I hope you don't think that. Like, it grew. It grew. So, even people that initially reject the gospel, we don't, we don't give up hope on anyone. People that have been hearing the gospel two times, three times, five times, ten times, some of you took a long time. You had to hear the gospel numerous times. And I think some of us heard it and we didn't even know we were hearing it at times We just because we were so spiritually blinded to it. We're going to see, see all sorts of in, instance, instances uh, in, in our lives when we get to heaven where God's going to show us the mercy and grace he poured out upon us, even as unbelievers. Some of those instances I, I remember, but I'm, I know there's hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of times like he was merciful and gracious. Tons of times I probably heard the gospel and didn't even really realize it because I wasn't interested. I rejected it from the get-go. I didn't even give the person uh, a chance to share much more. So the, the gospel is going forth and it's either going to get accepted or rejected. Friends, what we are, is like we're an aroma that we're, we're taking with us. You know, the gospel has, has a smell to it, so to speak. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This is what Paul says in verse 14. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And then look what it says. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death. I mean, you ever shared the gospel with someone, right? And I mean, they just flat out reject it, and they even hate you. 
Like, you know, the worst case scenario when you think about sharing with someone. Some of us have experienced that. That's that. I mean, the aroma to them, it's death. The fragrance from death to death. But then there's the other side. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. I mean, same gospel, right? Same gospel. It's not, it's not being changed. But how people perceive it and receive it, they accept it or they reject it. Those are the two reactions. Look how Jesus put it in Mark 13. This is in the passage Jesus talking about basically the signs of, of the end of the times. He says in verse 9, Mark 13, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And then look what happens, friends, as a result of us preaching the gospel, and brother will deliver brother over to death. And father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. We're not at that point yet in, in America, but, but there are countries like that. North Korea, encouraged to turn in your family members. And you get money for it, okay? Encouraged to turn them in. So some of you have experienced some, some tough moments with your family. I mean, it's bad. They haven't betrayed you yet to this point, in part maybe because they don't have that opportunity. Who knows? But if they could, some of them would. And when we're thinking about the Thessal Thessalonian church, the church at Thessalonica, I mean, think about the backdrop of what's going on there. I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, factions, religious factions. There's all sorts of different gods going on. There's a synagogue there, um, all sorts of different uh, religious beliefs, but there's all sorts of different political beliefs. And when you think about, you know, politics, sometimes people ask me, like, oh, how, how political is your church? You know, and other people are like, oh, you know, I don't want to go to too political of a church. Other people are like, oh, oh, the church shouldn't talk about politics. You know, friends, everything falls under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every single thing, every single category, every single subject. You know, so, I mean, I get it. You know, churches, uh, when President Trump was president, I mean, churches talked about, you know, Trump being God's appointed man. And every, every week, you know, some sermon about what Trump was doing. It was more like a, you know, a conservative nightly news commentary than a sermon. Um, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not right. Um, you're not looking for political commentary on one why, part, one, you know, why one party is right and, and one party is wrong. And you don't even want a pastor to have a newspaper in one hand and preparing his sermon in the other. Okay? He needs his Bible in his one hand and preparing his sermon in the other. However, the sermon should be applicable to the issues people are facing in this day. Okay? So, which means you're going to have to touch on different things. Uh, a lot of times, you know what the mistake that er, uh, younger preachers make? Is, is they will um, exegete the text. They will draw forth from the text and explain what the text says. But then they won't take the next step, which is really important, and, and say how it applies to us today. Like, that's great that uh, we're, what the Thessalonians are going through, but what about us? Like, how do we take that, and what is God saying to us through his word? Now, it's the same thing he was saying to the Thessalonians, but we're in a different culture and a context, so the preacher has to help us, hey, here's how it applies. Here's what we're called to do. Here's what we see, and now we, ourselves, have to walk it out. So some people are like, oh, no politics in the church. Well, here's the thing. Who decides what's political? Right? I mean, if the nightly news mentions it, does that mean the preacher can't? What about the Afghanistan withdrawal? I mean, that's political, right? Right? But it's very much religious, too, right? What about pro-life issues? 
That's very political. So we don't talk about that? I mean, think of the, the second greatest commandment. What's the second greatest commandment? Yeah, I'm starting to think that wasn't grape juice in the, in the communion here, y'all. <laughs> All right. Second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor, right? Guess what? That's political. I mean, isn't that at the heart of the pro-life movement? Love your neighbor. Love the least of these. So everything is political. You can't escape it. And think about it for a moment. Like politics is the new religion. So, I mean, church attendance is, is just dropping across the board for the most part. Actually, conservative churches are, are holding their own. But across the board, church attendance in America is just, it's, it's plummeting. But what, but what has risen in its place? Well, I mean, when you examine it, it's politics. And there's two major denominations, right? And there's fervor, there's the zeal, there's passion. And, and, and this has become something that, uh, that people have grasped onto. It gives them meaning, it gives them purpose, it gives them identity. That's where they're finding it. You know, so when Trump wins five years ago, it's like Jesus had come back. I mean, serious. And for others, it was like Satan had taken the throne. <clears throat> and then the reverse happened just last year, right? I mean, but people are putting uh, their hope and their faith in politics. And so guess what? I mean, every time something, you know, political happens, like, you know, they're either elated or they're devastated. Man, what a way to live. That's hopeless. But here's what we need to realize about the early church. What the early church believed was very political. Because the church believed Jesus was Lord. And guess what? By believing Jesus was Lord, they did not believe Caesar was Lord. That was political. Directly challenged the political setup and reality of the day. So when our beliefs clash with political beliefs of the day, guess what? We hold true to our biblically-based beliefs. What happens in Acts when they go to a new city? Well, usually the political leaders end up getting involved. And what do they do? Many times... They persecute the church. Are they persecuting us now? I mean, in some ways, yes. I mean, what's one of the roles of government? Protect the citizenry, right? Protect the citizenry. But if they let big tech corporations bully Christians, knock them off their platforms, cancel their public voice, and all the while the government does nothing about it, guess what? It's complicit. So the government doesn't have to do too much at this point. It's leaving the dirty work up to the companies. You know, years ago, uh, you have different web browsers. You got Safari and Chrome and a couple others, but Firefox is one of them. And about seven or eight years ago, there was Proposition 8 in California, which was a marriage proposition. And the CEO of Firefox gave money to this proposition in support of defending a biblical definition of marriage. Once that got out, he was forced out. Just recently, there was a CEO um, of a company who, who's there, it's a game developing company. And on Twitter, um, he was, uh, he tweeted out about the new, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court with the new abortion law in Texas. And this is what he said, proud of U.S. Supreme Court affirming the Texas law banning abortion for babies with a heartbeat. And then he added, as an entertainer, I don't get political often, yet with so many vocal peers on the other side of this issue, I felt it was important to go on the record as a pro-life game developer. I mean, he's the CEO. He's out three days later. I mean, why does the government need to do anything, right? So here's the thing. We have people that say, oh, well, I mean, Politics are so corrupted, Christians shouldn't have anything to do with that. Friends, every institution, political or not, is corrupted. Why? Because fallen man is involved. Fallen man is involved. There's going to be corruption. There's going to be sin. So what happens is people say, oh, you know, because it's corrupted. Look, everything's corrupted. Everything's corrupted. 
So th that doesn't mean we don't get involved. I mean, I mean, think about, I mean, you just think about the history of the church, right? Martin Luther, I mean, he saw the corruption. What did he do? Tried to reform it. He tried to work from within until they kicked him out. But he tried to work from within. So when, when it comes to, you know, even something like politics, like Christians, we don't run and hide. And we don't shelter ourselves. No, we go and we reach the masses with the gospel. And Christians go out and we have influence. It's not our own influence. It's the influence of the gospel. It's a gospel influence. I mean, we've been given the greatest thing. Even if you think about, like, different people in the Bible and the positions they held. Joseph, he was like the prime minister to the Egyptian pharaoh, right? Second in command. What about Daniel? Serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were given positions. Nehemiah, what was he? The cupbearer, right? Even look at, look at Romans 16 for a minute. Paul's wrapping up at the end of Romans 16, and he's greeting different people. And in verse 23, look what he says. First he says, Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church greets you. And then notice who he mentions, Erastus. Oh, and who is Erastus? Oh, he's the city treasurer. The city treasurer and our brother Cordus greet you. Now, if, if Paul didn't think Erastus should be the city treasurer, one, he probably wouldn't have mentioned it. And two, he probably would have encouraged Erastus or told him to get out of that position. But he, it's, it's important enough that he's, oh, the, the, the city treasurer, not a big deal. He's in politics. And think about Stephen with the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, do we get any, when you read that story in Acts, do you get any idea that after, after the Ethiopian eunuch got saved? I mean, th this person is, is, it says in Acts 8, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. But do we get any idea from reading that story? Any idea? To, do we get the thought that after he got saved, Stephen was like, hey, uh, by the way, you probably need to step down from that position. No. God puts us in different positions to make influence for him. It can be secular, it can be church, it can be all sorts of places. It can be the family. Now, obviously, there's certain jobs you can't do, okay? You can't be a hitman. Sorry. <clears throat> you can't be a computer hacker, okay? There's enough of those out there anyway. All the spam emails I get. You can't sell illegal narcotics, okay? But there's political positions in the Bible Look, God can call us to those positions, and I think he's called some of us here. Now, why am I saying all this? Because the Thessalonians were in a political environment, just like we're in a political environment. Now, at that time, had the Roman government stepped in and started to deal with Christianity? Not, not officially, no. I mean, Thessalonians is one of the earliest earliest letters but what was going on what was occurring there was the emperor giving commands and signing edicts about christianity not yet were officials putting pressure on churches not officially but guess what one local elected official and wreak a whole lot of havoc on one church. You know, India has horrible persecution. You're like, India? Like, what? As of 2020, it was placed in a tier one category for minority persecution, along with countries like China, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia. Hundreds of incidents of violence against Christians are reported every year in India. Now, does the government promote it? No. Does it sanction it? No. But does it do anything to stop it? No. It turns a blind eye. So back here with the Thessalonians, I mean, Christian, Christianity comes on the scene, and it flexes its spiritual muscle, and it's a pretty big muscle, by the way. And what does Rome do? It eventually reacts. But here's what, here's what 
confounds me and confuses me to some extent. If you think about it, we are the ones that bring the peace. Like, I mean, what, what, is, the, what is the accusation that is laid against us? I mean, it's like, what, think of a, what would be a good Roman Christian 2,000 years ago? How we're, we're telling him to be faithful to his wife. We're telling him to, to submit to Caesar in his lawful context. We're telling him to, to pay his taxes. Like, what's the deal here? We, we are promoting the common good. Well, because we're, we're saying that there's someone at the top. And it's not politics, and it's not Caesar. We're upending things. But we bring the peace. I mean, think of what the angels cried out when Jesus was born. What did they say? Luke 2, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So, I mean, why is it that the ones that want to bring peace, and they have the peace, and they're offering the peace, are the ones accused of disturbing the peace? I mean, think about it. Look at Acts 17. This takes place in Thessalonica. Verse 1, And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So, I mean, people are getting saved, right? And notice what it says, and not a few of the leading women. So, influential women, probably in politics of some sort. Maybe their husbands were influencers. Maybe they were part of the Roman Senate. We don't know. But it was not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, verse 5. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city up, city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, singing, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they're disturbed. But what set them off? It was really the Jews working up the crowd. Right? So either the word hadn't reached their ears yet about these believers, that's possible, or they weren't bothered by it. But what gets them riled up? What gets them disturbed? This small contingency here of unbelievers. And here's, here's the interesting thing when you read it, because the Jews are laying this accusation at their feet. And they say they are all acting against the decree of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Guess what? The Jews had a king as well. It was the same king. His name was Yahweh. And they're saying here, what are they saying? Oh, Oh, well, we can, we can say there's, there's a king in his name, Caesar. They're, they're going against their own scriptures. They're going against their own scriptures. Why? So much because they're willing to turn over. They want so badly for the proof to be against the believers. They're willing to lie against the very truth they know. They had a king, Yahweh. But here they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, same thing that the Pharisees did during the time of Jesus, right? Willing to bend the truth, twist the truth. Oh, oh, yeah, we're, we're loyal, but oh, Jesus over here, he's not loyal. I mean, it's the same scriptures that they had, the same truth that was being taught. So what do we do as we, we face persecutions and afflictions? Let me give a couple suggestions. One, get on our knees. We need to get on our knees. Afflictions should bring us to our knees. Look what Ephesians 6 says, and this is what we need to be reminded of. So he's telling them here at the end of Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God. And he says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Did you hear that? It's not against flesh and blood. 
It is not against flesh and blood. Who is it against? The rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. All of those, that description, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, those are all heavenly things. That's what he's talking about. That's who our fight is against. Now, will Satan use people? Absolutely. But we have to remember, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When the afflictions and the persecution arrive and is here. So we get on our knees. Well, what's the temptation? You want to know what the temptation is? It's to turn anywhere and everywhere else. You're going through afflictions, you're going through suffering, you will always be tempted to turn to something else other than Jesus himself. That's what the enemy is going to throw against you. That's why it's not against flesh and blood. It's going to be against those cosmic powers, those rulers, those authorities. They're going to throw what they can at you. And listen, Satan is fine with you turning anywhere else as long as it's not to God. Listen, people have their drug of choice to, like, numb them to things when it gets tough. Okay? Some people turn to alcohol, but guess what? Some people turn to food. And guess what? Some people turn to shopping. Some people turn to mindless internet surfing. Some people turn to zoning out on the couch with the TV on, binge-watching a show. They just, they just want to be numb. They don't want to have to deal with it. They don't want to have to face it. Friends, get on your knees. Face that. Because God himself can help you in the midst of your struggles, trials, afflictions. We cannot make it without him. Don't act like you can. We can't do it without him. So we need an open reliance on him. We're, we're crying out to him. We're crying out to him. Lord, I need you. Are you all hearing me? So we're crying out to God. We're putting on the armor of God. Here's the thing I want to encourage you with. Growth happens in trials and afflictions. Growth happens in trials and afflictions. So, you know, you need to say to yourself, like, in the midst of this, I'm not going to slow down. You, you can find yourself in very tough times. That doesn't mean you get to hit the pause button. It doesn't mean you get to take a break from your Christianity. It might mean you need to surround yourself with some believers to, to hold up your arms like they did for Moses to help you out, to support you, to bear your burdens. But it doesn't mean you get to stop. In the midst of this, you want to set your heart on God. The Thessalonians, turn back there because I want you to see it, they're being commended for their growth. Right? What is Paul doing? Verse 4, we, we boast about you. Hey, man, we're, we're, we're down at the Philippian church, and we're over at the Colossian church, and I'm working on my letter to the Ephesians in a little bit, and we're boasting about you. Why are we boasting about you? Because it says your steadfastness and faith and all your persecutions and afflictions, you're enduring. And what, I mean, First and Second Thessalonians like this, these encouraging letters, and he's encouraging and encouraging and encouraging and encouraging. He's encouraging them. Why? Because, I mean, they're doing really well, and he's like, keep going. Keep going. Stay strong. So the Thessalonians, their spiritual growth, think about this, has taken place in the context of strong opposition. That's where their growth is going on. It's interesting sometimes, and that's why I think we need to make sure that we prepare ourselves and our family to be prepared when afflictions and suffer. Why, why do sometimes people fall away? These things get tough. And they're like, oh. But, so, you know, I got saved down at Mizzou. I got saved, like, out of the fire. But what did I see happen? I, I saw believers come into that context. And I saw the enemy, like, snatch them away one at a time. I mean, I grew up in the midst of the fire. So I knew what it was like to get saved out of the fire. And we need to make sure that sometimes uh, God allows us, he gives us a taste of that fire sometimes, so we're prepared when the real fire hits. And we need to make sure sometimes we do, we, we're trying to shield our kids so much from everything. Homeschooling parents are the worst. <clears throat> we try to shield them from anything and everything that finally, at some point, listen, uh, they're not going to wear diapers forever. 
the training wheels do come off, okay, even at 25. But what's going to happen is they're going to get hit for the first time, and we haven't done a good enough job preparing them, and they're just going to get knocked right over. They need to face some affliction. They need to face some suffering. They need to face some persecution. Well, it's, you know, small doses, right? So we're there. We're protecting. And then in our wisdom, I mean, we should want those things in their proper amounts to come to them so that they're prepared. I mean, if you, if you think of like a boxer, you don't just throw him in, in the ring in his first match against some heavyweight. I mean, he's going to get his clock clean. I mean, so what are you doing? You're training. And, and guess what? Those boxers, they need to take a couple hits to the head. They need to get that knocked down a few times so they know what it's like so that the, when, when the real fight comes, they're prepared. Okay, so let's make sure we got the gloves on. Let's make sure we're lacing up our kids' gloves. Let's make sure that, that they're prepared for the real fight that lies before them. Here's the other thing. Afflictions. You're not going to like this. Afflictions reveal our heart. They reveal our heart. Sometimes we're like, oh, that, that just brings out the worst in me. Well, that might be true, but that, I mean, the worst in you is in there. I mean, at least you're admitting that. But a lot of times, oh, if I could get this person out of my life and this thing out of my life and this situation to deal with, I'd be doing so much better. Not really, because all that stuff would still be here. It'd still be there. You're like, oh, when I get in this situation, I just lose my cool. Well, guess what? That losing the cool is already in your heart. It just hasn't been dealt with. It gets exposed occasionally when you lose your cool, but it's still there. And so what we see is afflictions, it reveals our heart. It's not like, oh, affliction comes and it's like shoving stuff into our heart. Now, Jesus said whatever's in the heart, it's going to come out, right? So afflictions reveal our heart. So we got to be repentant. We need to walk in repentance as those afflictions come. And, and God, in his mercy, reveals what's here. It's not pretty. It can be painful. But he loves us. So he shows us what's here so that we can deal with it. He wants us to deal with it. It's revealing where we're really at. And yeah, we don't like it. We try to get out of the afflictions. We try to make excuses for our sin. There's no excuse for our sin. God wants us to deal with it. We also, I know I talked about it last week about growing, but we don't have an excuse not to grow. If the Thessalonians in their infancy and in their immaturity and their newfound faith in Christ can be growing like crazy, then so can we. The, the challenge is that sometimes we live in such a nice, comfy, posh little environment and world, it's easy for us just to loosen the sail in our sailboat a little bit, and the water's so calm, we just kind of kick back and enjoy the rocking a little. There's nothing, nothing pushing us against. There's no wind blowing. But we, we don't have an excuse not to grow. And sometimes I think, and I've been there myself, I mean, we're like, oh, when I get through this thing, I'll get more serious about Jesus. Or when I graduate from college, I'll spend more time in the Word. Or when I get done with this big project at work, I'll finally spend a little more time praying. Friends, here's what I, I've experienced. I mean, whenever I say those things and get done with them, whatever commitments I make, I just got more things that pop up. Or finally, I get those things done, and then I don't follow through. If I don't follow through when, when things are challenging, Guess what? I'm not going to follow through when things are easy. We have to continue ministry, even in the midst of our afflictions. You know, we got a, uh, how many did you say the numbers are up to on the fall party, Justice? Okay, every time I talk to him, like the number has just grown by like 10 or 15. I'm not even kidding you. It was like 100 last week. <clears throat> but we got this fall party coming up this Saturday. Over 200 people signed up. Um, that might not be your thing to go to fall parties, but you need to be there. Because we're ministering to people. We're ministering to people. So we take advantage of the opportunities that we get. This is something that the church is doing as a whole. We're ministering to people. Don't, don't be fooled into thinking that every homeschool, I, I used to think this, that every homeschool family was amazing and godly and awesome and all their kids just served the Lord wholeheartedly. Okay, then I met some homeschool families. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, I mean, they have struggles and afflictions, and they're dealing with different things, just like some of us. 
Some of them aren't believers. Some of their kids aren't believers. Some of them don't have a church home. Some of them haven't gone to church in a long time. So we want to minister to them. We're partnering with them. Uh, you know, SCCHE, the, the board there, and, and us as a church, we're partnering for, to put on the fall party. I mean, we got 200 people coming. What a great opportunity. So if you, see, if you come, I mean, if you've been coming here long enough, you at least know the faces. So if you see a face you don't recognize, I mean, just walk up. Chances are they're a homeschool family. How long have you been homeschooling? Why'd you choose homeschooling? I mean, just engage in conversation, a couple questions. Where do you go to church at? We're not trying to steal people from other churches, but if they don't have a church, invite them to church. Come tomorrow, we're having church at 1030. That's like, you know, I call it low-hanging fruit. That's pretty easy. Next Saturday, people are coming here, right on our church grounds. Certainly we can all go and, and shake a few hands and talk to a few people, right? You can still have a good time and hang out with your friends that you know. But regardless of where we're at, we, 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 don't, we don't quit ministering to people. We don't stop. We don't give up. We don't quit. We will quit at some point. And that's when it's the end for us. What does James talk about? Life is what? It's a mist. It's a vapor. We don't like to think about that. But our end will come. We're here just for a brief time. All right, I've been here for 45 years. And I feel like if the Lord took my life today, then I'd, I mean, it wouldn't really matter if I was okay with it or not. <laughs> but I'd be dead. <laughs> but the point is, I mean, there's some people that don't make it past the age of 5 or 10 or 15 or 20. Okay? And we, uh, let alone, some people don't even make it out of the womb. So the fact that you can even hear my voice and, and understand me and comprehend what I'm saying, like God has extended your life. He's extended it. And he doesn't owe us tomorrow. He doesn't even owe us the rest of today. Some of you need to come to peace with that. If we want to make it through affliction and persecution, we're going to have to bow and submit to God. He's going to have to be on the throne, and everything else that we might have up there or competing is going to have to be brushed aside. And friends, let me just be real with you. God has his terms. He's got his terms for coming to him. And we can take it or leave it. So we come to him, and he wants us coming before him in humility and in surrender. He wants us coming with the blood of Jesus, having covered us because we've trusted in his son. He wants us coming pleading for his mercy and his grace because we need it. How far does the gospel reach? I mean, really, how far does it reach? We either believe it or we don't. And if we believe it, then we act on it. We admit we don't believe it, well, then let's just go home. But, I mean, how far does it go? I mean, can it go to a place right outside of Malaysia where there's like tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people and there's just one known believer amongst this unreached people group. But can the gospel go there? Can it go there? Well, who's signing up to go? Well, we've got two signed up to go. Four if you count their kids. But Raymond and Leanne, I mean, they're going there. But you, you want to know what, what it takes to sign up to go? I mean, it's not just raising your hand. I'm sure they did that at some point. But you're talking about, you know, moving your family from St. Louis down to Texas and getting a master's degree in linguistics. But they've done that. And then coming back here and working on raising support. And then uprooting your family and going into an entirely different culture. Not just for a couple months or a couple years, but for potentially decades. Why? Because they believe that the gospel has no bounds of where it can go. And they want to see what Jesus talked about. 
We, we were, you know, even Peter kind of hints on this, but, I mean, Jesus says, hey, the end of the end isn't going to come until the gospel has gone forth to every nation. Every single nation. So, yeah, so who's signing up to go? Well, most of us aren't called to go there. But guess what? We're called to get the gospel there, right? Are we called to do that? I mean, are we called to do that? If we're not called to take the gospel there, then let me, let's, just, let's just leave and, and quit. And I mean, no, we're called to get the gospel there. We're called to get the gospel there. So yeah, uh, maybe you and you and you and you and you and you, you're not supposed to get on the plane to go. But, but you got to roll in getting the gospel there. Okay? That means some of you are, are, are taking out your pocketbook and you're, you're writing a check. You want to get the gospel there. God's gifted you here with a job, with money, with affluence. Not so you can upgrade your cars. Not so you can get the vacation home. It's about the gospel, friends. The gospel. We're back to laying bricks. We're building the kingdom. Okay, The kingdom is not a 2022 Corvette. That's not the kingdom. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom is getting the gospel forth. And, and some of us, when we got baptized, we have to remind ourselves that our pocketbooks got baptized as well. All right? Either Jesus got all of you or he got none of you. I think he got all of you. I hope he got all of you. If he got all of you, then he, he, he's got it all. And then the question is, not do I give, it's how much. Right? You know, I heard this the other day. It was, it was a good little saying. I wrote it down, but uh, the person was talking about giving, and he said that um, tithing, tithing is the training wheels of generosity. Tithing is the training wheels of generosity. So we want the gospel to go forth. We want it to go everywhere. When opportunities come, like we got the Operation Christmas Child, I mean, let's, I forget how many boxes we had last year. I don't know, like 200 or something like that. I mean, that, that's the gospel going forth. We've got to have better eyes than just thinking it's a, a couple presents for kids scattered across this world. Well, what a poor view we have if that's the case. Samaritan's Purse, I mean, they're using that to get the gospel to those kids. We want to see the nations transformed. Guess what? Grab that young generation coming up. Certainly we can buy a couple things and put them in a box and pay the whatever it is, 10 bucks to send the box wherever it needs to go and pray for our boxes that the gospel goes forth. And certainly we can give and increase our, our missions budget and, and make it possible for Raymond and Leanne to get where the gospel needs to go. And certainly we can let God use us in whatever context he has us right here in Missouri, for the gospel to go forth. Let, let us broaden our view, friends. Let us broaden our view, brothers and sisters, of where the gospel is supposed to go. And, and then, because I think you all believe it, but let's really believe it. And then let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Do you want to make it happen? Okay, I want, I want to make it happen. Apparently, three other people want to make it happen, too. <clears throat> I'm not laughing, okay? <laughs> like, we, we need to partner together. We went through an entire book, and the, the title of the book was what? The Gospel, right? We went through another book. The title of the book was Conversion. Like, if you've been here for more than a year or two, you know the Gospel. You know about conversion. If you've been here for maybe two and a half years, you know the importance of discipleship. But it starts with the gospel. That's what we got to get out there. That's what we got to spread. You don't think there's going to be gospel opportunities next Saturday? There's going to be gospel opportunities. Not, it's, it's not a question of if, it's a, it's, a, it's a question of if you'll take those. If you'll take them. If you'll look for them, pray for them, and take them. That's what we need to be doing. All right? So let's take the gospel and fulfill the Great Commission. Let's take the gospel everywhere Jesus has commanded us to take it.
to the uttermost parts of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel, for the good news that your son died for a dying world. That your son gave his life so that others might have real life. And so we pray, God, now for Operation Christmas Child, not just our boxes, but all the boxes that will go out in the next couple months. Bless them. Lord, let many, many, many youth come to know you as a result of something as a box filled with some different gifts and the gospel being presented with it. And God bless our fall party. Make it fruitful, God. Make it spiritually fruitful. Let there be gospel conversations. Let it be a time of fellowship. Let it be a time of ministry. Lord, bless Raymond and Leanne, Lord, as, as they're back here and raising support. And even now we pray that their ministry would be fruitful. That you'd give them wisdom beyond their years to do ministry in a foreign context. And you make them courageous and bold. And Father, do the same for us. To take the gospel where you give us opportunity, whether it's writing a check, whether it's praying for others, or doing it ourselves. All three of them, Lord, you call us to. Use us, Father, to be your ambassadors. The harvest is truly plentiful, God. So let us bring it in. Amen.